Turn in your Bibles to the book of Exodus. We will read out of Exodus chapter 20. We will also read Exodus 34. And then invite you as well to turn to um, the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. The Gospel of Mark chapter 7. I will have you turn there uh, during, the, during the message, but we, we'll read that as well for our uh, scripture reading this morning. Scripture reading will be Exodus chapter 20. Verses 1 through 7. And God spoke to all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And now Exodus, if you would turn to Exodus 34. Beginning in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took his, in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And now Mark chapter 7. Verses 1 through 13. Mark 7, verse 1. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees... And all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. 
And when they came from the marketplace, uh, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles his father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making, the, making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. This is the reading of God's word, and we say, thanks be to God. Indeed, God, we, having heard your word, knowing that we're going to hear more from your word, we pray here in these next few moments you would give us um, clarity, insight, that you would cause us to see things in your word and make connections that you have for us there. Pray that uh, as we reflect here uh, on the third commandment that you have given uh, in the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, that we would see in there what our obligation and duty is uh, to you, where we have gone wrong, and how we could be forgiven through Christ and to walk in newness of life. And so we pray that you would help us to do that this morning. And we pray this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's, uh, let's look at our catechism questions this morning. We'll look at question 58 through 61. And I'll have you recite the answers. Question 58 is dealing with the verse that we just read in Exodus chapter 20, verse 7. Which is the third commandment? And we say, the third commandment is... Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Question uh, 59, what is required in the third commandment? We say, the third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Question 60, what is forbidden in the third commandment? The third commandment forbiddeth all profaning and abusing of anything whereby God makes himself known. And lastly, what is the reason annexed to the third commandment? The reason annexed to the third commandment is that however the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, Yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment. So we are looking at our series on the Ten Commandments. We're looking at the law of God as it is 
presented to us in the Ten Commandments. And today we are looking at the third commandment, no taking the Lord's name in vain. We read from Exodus chapter 20. You can find the identical verse in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 11. And the recap here where we are in this series, we're looking at the law of God, the, the what is the duty that God requires of man that is to follow his will? How, where can we find his will? His will is revealed to us in his moral law. His moral law is summarily comprehended for us in the Ten Commandments. It didn't begin there. It predates the Ten Commandments. It's eternal. It's written on man's heart. It's uh, natural, inherent of our obligation as creatures made in God's image. And these are just God's way of spelling out for here the people of Israel what their obligation then is based on that eternal moral law. And so we've looked at the first commandment, the second commandment. We looked at idolatry last week. Today we're looking at the third commandment, not to take the name of the Lord in vain. Now there's a couple of meanings. When you hear this verse, what comes to your mind? Perhaps maybe it was some... Uh, your childhood, and you were playing with your friends, and you yelled some terminology in the backyard playing, and then heard the voice of your mother coming from in the house. Is this only me? Is this only me that this happened to? Uh, so, in other words, using coarse or foul language or dirty words or dirty jokes. Now, that certainly might be included here in what is meant in taking the Lord's name in vain. But it's much more than that. It's not just dirty or foul language and those kinds of things, but it's invoking God's name in such an irreverent sort of way. Even in expletives or things like that, or have empty or no use. But it's even a little more than that, as we'll see. It's the actual misuse of God's name in worship and in other solemn ways. It's a misuse of God's name in worship and in other solemn ways. So I want us to look at this verse here in Exodus chapter 20 and uh, kind of make sure we have a clear understanding of what it says here in verse 7. The third command is, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And here the, the, first, the, the verb there is to take up. Uh, it means to, like to take up, to raise up, to take upon our lips. That's important to know. But the key term I want you to notice is his name. The name of the Lord your God. Okay, so I want to focus on this a little bit. And some of this might be review and some of this might be very familiar to you. Is how does God has revealed himself in his name? I invite you to turn back with me in Exodus, same, same book, earlier in Exodus where Moses has that encounter on the, uh, in, uh, at the, um, with the burning bush. Moses sees this burning bush. It's on fire, and yet it's not burning up. And he wants to go and see it, and then he hears the voice that says, Moses, Moses, here I am. Don't come any closer. Take the sandals off your feet, because where you're staying is holy, holy ground. And this is where Moses gets his commission to go to Pharaoh, the Lord has heard the cry of his people, and he's going to bring them out. And Moses has a, a reasonable question in verses 13 through 15. He says, and Moses said, okay, so say I come to this people, the people of Israel, and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What am I to say? Notice in verse 14, God said to Moses, 
And in the ESV here, I saw in all caps, and I believe it might be that way in other versions too, God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. And God said to Moses, say this to the people, the Lord, notice that's in all capitals as well. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Now turn to the right a little bit to chapter 6, and you see a, a further explanation from God here about this name. We would say Yahweh, or sometimes it's pronounced Adonai to avoid kind of saying Yahweh. Or we would say, oh, Lord, in all capitals. It's related to this I am. I am who I am. We saw this in John series, right? When Jesus several times would say, I am. And sometimes he just said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And this caused a great deal of consternation because they knew what he was saying. He was claiming deity. Notice what he, uh, God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 6. Verses 2 through 5, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Notice that again. That's his name. That's his covenant name. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Okay, so it's the same God you see earlier in the biblical story. You go back to Genesis, same God. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land which you are, in which they are lived, lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of my people of Israel, whom the Egyptian hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. So this is key. This is the covenant name of God, the Lord. And why are we saying, why are we focusing here on this? Because the because name, biblically speaking, name is not just what people call you. Name is, in, is inherent to your reputation. And in God's case, it's deeply connected with his being and his attributes. So turn with me again to the right. Let's look at the passage that we looked at in Exodus chapter 34 which is a phenomenal passage. You know this from our reading, that this comes after the golden calf incidents that we looked at last week. And remember the, the two tablets, the original two tablets of stone that had the 10 words on it, the 10 commandments, were smashed and broken. And the Lord calls Moses up. He says, cut me some new ones, and then I'm going to write on it. And then there's a, a little ceremony here that begins at verse 7. I think it's really fascinating. I remember on one of my trips to Israel, one of our tour guides was talking about the various ways in which the Lord God called people's names in the Bible, and he mentions them twice. And he went through the, the seven times, the seven significant times that this happened. And you know what I'm talking about, like Abraham, Abraham. The Lord didn't just say Abraham when he's offering Isaac. He says Abraham, Abraham. He mentions it twice. Why? Why would the ancient writers writing on such... You know, limited resources spend so much time to write Abraham, Abraham twice, unless the Lord was calling him twice. That's in Genesis chapter 22. Same thing for, for Jacob. Jacob, Jacob, when he tells him no, not to be afraid to go down to Egypt. 
Or Moses, Moses, the passage that we just saw, Exodus chapter 3. Moses, Moses, don't come any closer. The, land you're, the ground that you're standing is holy ground. Or young Samuel in the temple. Samuel, Samuel. Remember the Lord would call Samuel and he would go to Eli, thinking Eli had called him. And then he would go back to sleep and then the Lord would call him. And then finally he says, Samuel, Samuel. And then Samuel gets his commissioning as a prophet here. Says, yeah, I'm going to do something about which the, the, uh, those who hear it will make their ears tingle. Jesus does this. Martha, Martha. When he says to her, you've chosen, Mary has chosen something better. Or Simon, Simon, when Satan is about ready to sift you, he goes, I'm praying that you will not fail. Or the conversion of the apostle Paul, Saul, on the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul. And I remember the tour guide talking about all of this, and that was very interesting. And I was like, he left out what I think is one of the best parts. Where the, the eighth time where the Lord God calls his own name twice. Exodus chapter 34. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone. This is verse 4. And he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. And he took in his two hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the Lord, proclaimed the name of the Lord. If you read that, don't think Moses is proclaiming the name of the Lord. It says the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. Verse 6, and the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God most merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The significance of God's name. And I spent some time on that because name is, name is far more than what people call you. How much more true is that of God? It's his reputation. It's connected to these attributes. It's connected to his glory. Joel Beakey writes this. He says, quote, the name of the Lord is his glory. God's name is the object of prayer and worship. His name encapsulates what people learn about him from his gracious works. God's name is his very nature, what he reveals himself to be. Close quote. God's name is his very nature, what he reveals himself to be. So God takes his name very, very seriously. And how people take his name onto their lips, how people employ his name, he also takes very, very seriously. So that's the first thing I want us to notice from this Exodus 3, or from Deuteronomy, or Exodus chapter 20. Do not take up God's name, and the second term here is in vain. Sorry, let me give you some slides here. God's name and in vain. The Hebrew word here for vain, it denotes um, ineffectiveness, um, worthlessness, falseness, falsehood. It's used in a variety of ways in the, the Old Testament. The, the futility of some things, that they're, they're empty or vain. It's used uh, for giving... The, it's used for the prohibition that we'll see later in our Ten Commandments about giving false testimony. 
bearing false witness, empty witness, false. It's a term that's used for the, the visions of lying prophets in Ezekiel. And for us, it's the one here, it's used in this third commandment. So this corresponds with, so looking at all of this together, we are not to take up, take upon our lips the name of the Lord or, or his attributes and his being on our lips in an empty or false way. We could say it's like this. It's a, a dishonest or deceptively invoking of God's name, taking an unlawful oath in God's name. You could probably sense we're talking a really wide category than uttering dirty language in the backyard with your friends when you were a kid. They include that, but it's definitely more. It bans the flippant ways that God's name is used in our speech. It bans, for a number of other things, invoking God's name for magic or sorcery. It invokes, it, it prohibits or bans the invoking of God's name and saying that he is going to do something that he has not given authorization to do. So in other words, false prophets. So taking God's name in vain, it's a broad category and there's much that we could look at uh, here for this. But he is very serious about this. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 12. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane... Or blaspheme the name of your God, I am the Lord, he says. So this topic here that's introduced here with this verse is dealing with, uh, with oaths and vows. Oaths and vows. Now, what's the difference between an oath and a vow? Um, according to our confessional statement, they do explain the difference between what is an oath and what is a, a, a vow. And I think that this is quite helpful here. Sometimes maybe in the Old Testament, it's hard to tell the difference between the two. Maybe they're used, kind of seems like they're used somewhat synonymously. But I think it's important that a distinction be made between an oath and a vow. An oath, what is meant by an oath? Well, that's a solemn and binding promise um, that the truth would be affirmed. And now there's a couple ways that, this, that an oath is used. It's used for something that is in the past and then also used for something in the future. So it's a solemn promise. It's invoking God as the divine witness regarding the, the veracity of the truthfulness of a past action. Okay? So you, you swear an oath in a court of law that you're going to tell the truth of what you remember of, uh, of a past action. But it's also used for future action. So you're invoking again, invoking God as the divine witness of a promise to do a future action or behavior. That's, that's an oath. A vow, uh, and I, again, I think that this is helpful, the distinction between an oath and a vow is that the vow is uh, directed to God as opposed to others. It's a binding promise made to God, usually in the context of worship or religious practice. Okay? So an oath, solemn promise to the truth, whether it's a, the past, the truthfulness that you're testifying to a past event or the truth uh, that you're promising to, for something in the future to other persons with God invoked as the witness and a vow is a solemn promise made to God. They're very similar. I think the differences are helpful, but the principles, I think, how they apply uh, can come to both in sincerity and truthfulness. 
So now some of you might be asking, okay, so you're saying this is okay to take vows. What did, didn't Jesus somewhere prohibit us from making oaths at all? Now for that, I invite you to turn uh, to Matthew chapter five. Actually, I think I have it on the screen. Matthew chapter five, verses 33 and 37. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount says this, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, do, uh, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. See, doesn't it seem like he's prohibiting oaths entirely? Either by heaven or by, uh, uh, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be simply yes or no, Anything more comes from evil or from the evil one. His brother James in the letter to James said something similar. He says, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you will not fall under condemnation. Now, is this a flat rejection of any and all oaths? Now, I think many would say, well, not entirely, for a couple of reasons. And here's why. So hear me out. It, Israel was commanded to give oaths. For example, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God who you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Meaning you don't, you don't swear to any other deities or any other local gods. You're swearing to the truthfulness of the one true God. Again, it's re reiterated in Deuteronomy chapter twenty or 10, verse 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him. And by his name, you shall swear. Jesus himself had given an oath before the high priest. He says, put him to an oath and answer the question. And Jesus answers the question. The apostle Paul swore oaths. And he actually invoked, he actually told other people to, uh, to do oaths as well. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, where the Apostle Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. Or Galatians 1.20. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. And then this is where in 1 Thessalonians, he puts, he puts other people under an oath. He says, I put you under an oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all of the brothers. And lastly, I would say one of my, one of my favorite passages in the New Testament, and if for those of you who've been around for a while, you're like, yeah, right. You, you have so many. I, we've heard you say this sort of so many times. But Hebrews chapter 6, it's a very fascinating passage. The Lord, God himself swears an oath. Okay, now what's an oath? We would swear by, you know, something higher than us, and God says don't swear by other deities or, uh, you know, kings or uh, in thrones and things like that. It's, if you, you swear, you swear by God and God alone because he's the only one who's sovereign over all things, to see all things. He's the one who could actually testify to the truthfulness of, of what you're saying. But I like this in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in thir verse 13, where the preacher of Hebrews is pointing out that God makes an oath to Abraham. Hebrews 6.13, for when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. 
For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. I love his, his argument there. He's talking about where the Lord God makes a promise to Abraham, and then he confirms that promise by God himself making the oath. And who's he going to appeal to? He goes, here's my oath. I swear on me. And it's those two things. It's not just the promise, but it's God's oath is what's encouraging and insurance for them. So back to this. Is, is Jesus condemning oaths entirely? I would say I, I don't think that's what is exactly he's getting at here. Now, there's some denominations and some traditions of the church that will say that. So they won't make any oaths at all. I don't think he's saying that oaths in themselves are wrong. What is wrong and what Jesus is repudiating is what are called kind of second class oaths or oaths sworn by persons to sound like they're invoking God's name. But in reality, they're invoking things tangential or peripheral to God or associated with God. And it was in this way you swear oaths in that way. It sounded like you were calling God as a witness, but in reality, it was avoiding the use of God's name, giving you some some wiggle room. You kind of weasel your way out. Or, you know, maybe if you're a politician, plausible deniability. Jesus is saying in the strongest terms, those who follow him, we speak the truth. Your yes is yes. Your no is no. You don't, you don't live your life in a way that you're looking for angles to figure out how I could get out of promises or oaths. Instead, your, what your yes be yes, your no be no. So that swearing an oath on the temple or Jerusalem or whatever wouldn't be necessary to someone who speaks the truth, knowing that in everything you do, everything, God is a witness. Everything you do, God is a witness. To everything you do and everything you say. So back to our so hopefully that's a helpful understanding here of this command, what's included in here, taking the Lord's name in vain. It's a really broad category. We could go numerous directions here, but just remind us, question 59, what's required in this? The third commandment requires the holy and reverent use of God's names and his titles and his attributes and its ordinances, his word and his works. Because you remember, your name is more than just what people call you. Or verse 60, what's forbidden? The third commandment forbids all profaning and abusing anything whereby God has made himself known. Let me give you a couple of examples uh, from the larger catechism, which lists, it's, it's over a dozen different points, and some of them are quite long. But let me just kind of read through a couple of them to give you an idea, a sense of what's kind of involved here. This is the long one. <laughs> so, here's one. What's, what's included in this? taking the Lord's name in vain. They say, misinterpreting, misapplying, or in any way perverting the word or any part of it to profane jests, 
Okay, so this would be kind of like that first category we talked about, using the Lord's name in any kind of, you know, flippant way or joking or expletive or kind of cursing. It would include that. And then curious or unprofitable questions, vain janglings. I, I'm going to create a blog, and now I'm going to call it vain janglings. <laughs> oh, no, that would be forbidden. We can't do that. I just love that. Vain janglings. We need to reintroduce that back to our vocabulary. Uh, vain janglings or the maintaining of false doctrines. Okay? The maintaining of false doctrines. I think this kind of hits the larger category of false prophets. False prophets and false prophecy and how frequently they're condemned in Scripture. We, we know this, but how many of us thought that actually this at its root is a third commandment violation? It's taking the Lord's name in vain. How many times do we see this accounted for us in the, in the Old Testament of prophets who claim to be speaking on behalf of God? Deuteronomy 18, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak and who speaks in the name of other gods even, that same prophet shall die. Serious. This is serious. And if you say in your heart, how shall we know that the Lord Know the word that the Lord has spoken. When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him, meaning not to be afraid of what he had to say. Right? So be gone, COVID-19, that kind of thing. Invoking the name of the Lord for, for false prophecies or even promises made to people's lives about what, might, what blessings that the Lord might give you or healings he might give you. To make those declarations in the name of the Lord. Boy, I cannot stress to you, this is, this is not just some kind of discernment guy going off the rails here. This is serious. This is serious. Or Jeremiah 14 and the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying lies in my name. That, see, you notice how God is concerned with his name? I did not send them, nor did I command them or speak to them. They are prophesying to you a lying vision, worthless divination, and the deceit of their own minds. Therefore, thus says, the Lord says concerning the prophets who prophesy in my name, Although I did not send them who say sword and famine shall not be consumed by the land. He says in an ironic twist here, he says by sword and famine, those prophets shall be consumed. The prophets are saying to Israel, peace, peace. There's no peace. You're not going to be harmed. The, the sword and famine are not going to come to the land. And I love the Lord's sense of humor. Well, by sword and famine, you're going to be consumed. God takes it very seriously. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16. Again, this would be under the old covenant. But, but may the, the general equity thereof be understood here, what the principle, how serious this is. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. So misinterpreting, misapplying, vain janglings. What about this one? Fulfilling them, and that is oaths, fulfilling them if, all, uh, if of things unlawful. Okay, so what they're condemning here, what they're saying here is that if you fulfill an oath that is unlawful, 
That is wrong. If you've sworn an oath, you've, you've made an oath or a, a vow, and it is an unlawful oath, then, it would, then you are not under obligation to keep it. Okay, so let me give an example. So unlawful here means un, not the civil law. The unlawful means here God's law, meaning is this, is this a sinful oath? Have you made a sinful oath or a sinful vow? And it's saying here is if you fulfill a sinful oath, promise to do something, and it's unlawful, then you are violating the third commandment. An example of this would be the story of King Herod. Remember when Salome was dancing before him and he says, hey, I'll promise you anything, baby. Would And she goes, give me, the, with some little help, uh, I want the head of John the Baptist. And, and Herod is making kind of an oath. I promise you, I'll give you whatever you want. I want the head of John the Baptist. And now Herod had to fulfill it, right? That's, so he thought, but would, is he obligated to have fulfilled that? No, he was, that's a sinful vow. Let me give it a, a kind of a modern day example. There was a video that just reemerged. It's a video from a couple of years ago, but it reemerged of, uh, of a pastor. His name's Andy Wood and his wife. Have you guys seen this video this week? They're the successors to, you probably don't know Andy Wood, but you would know who they're the successors of, Rick Warren at Saddleback Church in California. And they're the successors, notice plural, of Rick Warren. And in this video, he was asked this question about gay friends uh, who were married and adopted children, but they have since come to Christ the question that was put to them then in this situation, God hates divorce, but how would you approach the situation? Okay, this, yeah. Sounds like a toughie, right? And, and uh, he for, thought for a long time and he says, I don't know. I don't know if there's a black and white. And then he goes on to the, like, well, maybe we'd, I'd sit with them. I'd walk with them. I'd pray with them. I'd journey with them. And then I think he said, journey with them and journey with them and journey with them like four times. The real, so you notice what the, the issue is here, that you've made a vow. You've made your marriage oath, made your marriage vows. But something's happened now and you become a Christian and now children's involved. I get that. But the real answer is gay marriage is not marriage. It's not, God defines marriage and that ain't it. So vows made to God or to others in a marriage ceremony that's not a marriage, that's not a lawful vow. That's not a lawful oath. And our, conf our confession differentiates between lawful oaths and vain oaths. That's a vain oath. And it's by vain oaths the Lord is provoked. So you're under no obligation to, to God for a vain oath that is in violation of his law. So that's what they mean here by fulfilling them. That's fulfilling oaths. If things unlawful, then that would be prohibited. But then they add another one here, violating of our oath and vows if lawful. What if it is a lawful vow? What if it is a lawful oath that you have made? Then you, if you violate those, this is a serious, this is a serious offense against God. This really gets to the heart of the matter. You, we have to, we have to be people of the truth. We have to be people of our word that we can be trusted. Because 
you're invoking God as your witness. And here's uh, the fourth one. This will be the last one. Making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends. Making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends. We can look at a couple of examples. I was thinking one of, uh, in the book of Acts, the um, Simon the sorcerer who ends up becoming a Christian and then when they come and they lay their hands on the other believers there who come to become Christian and they see that the apostles are laying on their hands kind of authenticating this ministry that the spirit was indeed there and how important that is for the apostles to be there for that. And then Simon's like, ooh, that's cool. Like, ooh, that's cool. Hey, how, how much money can I give you for that ability, right? That, that's a, you know, maybe hypocrisy in religion. But the one that I think of goes back to this passage that we looked at in Mark 7. So if you're still there, look at Mark 7. Jesus in Jerusalem. The Pharisees are there. Mark tells us all about this process the Pharisees go through for their ceremonial washings and cleansing. There's certain rituals that they had to do for washing their hands in a certain way and a certain number of times. And they wash the cups and the pots and the copper vessels and so the Pharisees see Jesus and his disciples, and they're not really following along with this custom. And so they come to Jesus, and again, I think this is another example of them trying to undermine him and undermine his ministry. Verse 5, why do you and your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And notice what Jesus says to them. Verse 6, well did Isaiah prophesy of you, hypocrites, as it is written? And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 29. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as command, doctrines the commandments of men. What Jesus is pointing out here, that's a third commandment violation. Or at least that's the, the ultimate issue that is wrong with them. I mean, there's a lot wrong with them. But he goes, you're epitomizing right now with this imposition of these commands of men upon me and my disciples. And in such, you actually, what you're doing is your whole system is worshiping with your lips, but your heart is far from me. Jesus said, what, is that? what Isaiah was talking about is exactly you. And, and notice how he elaborates on this. Verse 8. Case in point. Let me give you an example. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. You notice he separate those out. There's commandments from God, and then your, there's your elaborations or inventions, traditions of men, that maybe, you know, or attempt to be derived from that in some way, but they don't come from God. They come from man. And he says, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother. Fifth commandment, right? And whoever reviles his father and mother must surely die. But you say, if a father, so he's quoting them from their own little you know, rules in their systems here. Um, here's their little case law. Um, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you would have gained from me is Corban. And he gives you the 
translation there. That is a gift dedicated to God. Then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother. Know what they're doing here. He's saying, you guys have created this little system where if there is some way that maybe they want to hold on to their money and not take care of aging or elderly parents, if they want to hold on to this in some way uh, or to get out of the money going to their parents, you could say, I I've already made an oath. I made this oath. I made it as a gift to God. So I can't help you, mom and dad, because I'm giving this elsewhere. Get what he's, this is, this is oath. You, you're finding ways to make an oath to go around fulfilling what God's will and desire is. To, take, to care for parents. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father and mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And then Jesus says, this is the tip of the iceberg, and many such things you do. I could go on and on about all the ways that you're making false oaths. You're basically lying in the name of God and finding a way to wiggle out of it. So this is, this is making profession of religion in hypocrisy or for sinister ends. Don't know that it would be really hard for us to spend some time meditating on the ways in which that kind of happens today. Jesus says, no, when, when you're taking, whether you directly invoke the name of the Lord or not, you need to, everything you need to say needs to be said and done as if you're doing it in the name of the Lord. Because he's a witness to it all. You should be people of the truth. Yes, be yes. Your no, be no. In some ways, this third commandment is the first table parallel to the second table's ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. In a way, taking the Lord's name in vain is bearing false witness on his behalf. So what are the uses here? Let's go to the first use of the law, right? Convict of sin, to convict sinners of sin and to bring them to the gospel. Swearing of oaths or vows, calling God as your witness vainly or falsely is a serious violation against God's character. Remember the seriousness of the words. The serious, Le Leviticus chapter 24, verse 16, that, that if you blaspheme the name, if you profane the name of the Lord, it's des deserving of death. Even in, the, even in the Exodus passage that we read, it gives, it gives the, the reason for it. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Or as we saw in our... Catechism question 61, what's the reason annexed to this? The reason annexed to the third commandment is that whoever, the breakers of this commandment, however, the breakers of this commandment may escape punishment from men, yet the Lord our God will not suffer them to escape his righteous judgment because he sees. Sometimes I think it's easier to read these commandments and see how before we were Christians, or even now, if you're not a Christian, you could kind of see what is clearly violated and broken here. This third commandment is, is much broader than we think and brings much more condemnation than we might realize. But indeed, there is forgiveness for sins, for such blaspheming and taking the Lord's name in vain or... Uh, 
or to profane the name of the Lord. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 12, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven of people, but the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word, if you speak a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven. But whoever speaks a word against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or the age to come. This is the willful, persistent rejection of God and his commands. And this sin is unique for unbelievers. I know some Christians are worried. Did I do, have I committed the unpardonable sin, blasphemy? No, if you have repented of your sin and have trusted in Christ, no. Blasphemy of the, the Holy Spirit is the rejection and the, the work of the Holy Spirit to convict you of your sins and your need for a Savior, and that's to go, ah, that's from someplace else. So all of our blasphemies, I mean, all of them, apart from the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, those are all freely offered. Forgiveness for those are freely offered to us in the gospel and through Christ. He took the curse that is due to us. He took it upon himself. He became the curse for our law-breaking that his death on the cross would bring us forgiveness of sin and reconciliation with God. That's the first use. Well, let's go to the third use. And that is, what about for believers today? What does this mean for believers today? Reverently use God's name. Now, let me recap some of the earlier ones that I was talking about. Coarse language, foul language, and those kinds of things. Of course, Christians should not speak in such a way. Several times in the New Testament letters, like here, Ephesians chapter 4, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as fit the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. He's talking to believers here. He's talking to those who we read in the earlier part of our series. You, you were enemies with God. God's wrath was on you. You were children of wrath, but now you've been forgiven. And now he gives them instructions. He says, by faith, by grace and faith, you are saved in Jesus Christ. And he goes, but here's some instructions for you. You can't have corrupting talk. And then he goes on in a few verses later, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Or Colossians chapter 3, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Of course, this includes that. Taking the Lord's name in vain would include those sorts of things. That's why I believe that the Apostle Paul includes those here. But even more than that, to this taking of the, the Lord's name in vain with falseness and pretense, remember that we are united to Christ by faith. That he promises, he seals us with the Holy Spirit, he puts within us. And the Holy Spirit bears fruit in our lives, fruit of righteousness, love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, justice, faithfulness, and self-control. And because of that, then, we need to remove the vain oaths and vain taking of the Lord's name in all of our, in all of our speech. We need to be people who keep our promises. We need to, when we gather for worship, we worship in sincerity and truth. To be people of the truth, 
that we be not like those hypocrites, the Pharisees, but that we would indeed honor Christ with our lips, or put it this way, may we be a people who honor Christ with our lips and whose hearts are not far but near him. And may we not worship in vain, but in spirit and in truth. Amen? With that, let's go to the Lord's table. What a better way to end than to be reminded of this gospel in a very tangible way, to be nourished with the truth that Christ has taken all of the blasphemy and the profanity and the vain speech from our lips, and he's forgiven that in his work on the cross, and that we turn to him now with gratitude and thanksgiving, and that we be nourished in the truth of that gospel through the taking of this meal together. So let me pray for it and then invite you to the table. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that for your word that feeds us. Every word that comes from your mouth nourishes us and nourishes our souls like, like bread nourishes our bodies. And so we thank you that in addition to your word, we do have this ordinance, these sacraments that you have given through your son, commanded your church to take the bread, the broken body of Christ and the fruit of the vine, which is the new covenant of his, of his blood, and that we are nourished and refreshed in our spirits. We thank you for this tremendous gift. And we pray it in Christ's name and all God's people said, amen. amen.